When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Welcome back to Unshaken for this week. I'm Jared Halverson and so excited to talk about more missionary chapters in the book of Alma. Today we'll be going from Alma chapter 23 all the way through Alma chapter 29. There's a ton of material here and it's incredible. So I hope you'll stick with me through however many segments of this lesson we need. I know there are a lot of Come Follow Me channels on YouTube and they're all excellent. Some are more intellectual, others more devotional. Some lean towards history and others towards application. Some are meant more for teachers and others more for students. And like I said, they're all awesome. Many of you have said to me that the one thing that you seem to appreciate is how slowly I go, finding truth and application in almost every verse. So if that's what you're looking for, you found the right place. If they still feel too long, you can speed them up in the settings, make me sound like an auctioneer racing through the Book of Mormon. Or you could pause it and come back to it whenever you need. I know many of you are already doing that, so you can take notes in your scriptures. That's actually one of my hopes for each of you, that you'll have your scriptures open as we go through this so that you can be marking words and phrases that jump off the page. Whatever works for you, I'm just thrilled that you're here to feast upon the words of Christ. And it's a privilege for me to be able to be a part of that with you. I was struck last week, though, as I was video editing, watching myself for hours on end. Very painful experience, believe me. But I found myself at times learning from myself, which is a strange experience. Come to think of it, the fact that I was learning from myself means it wasn't from myself. It was from a higher source. But whatever was being said at the time triggered some thoughts. I know these videos are long and I try to squeeze as much into them as I can. But in watching them myself, I realized that there is always more than what could possibly be covered. Even after reading and rereading, teaching and reteaching these things for the last 20 years of my life. My uncle spent his career teaching religion as well, Mike Wilcox, one of the great teachers of our day. And he let me know when I was new in my career that as long as I spent studying the scriptures, I would never exhaust the truth and light that is available there. He told me that it's a lot like the loaves and the fishes. That was a finite amount of food. But because of the blessings of God and the needs of the people, it just kept multiplying until it not only met all those needs, but filled 12 extra baskets because people will get hungry again later. There's always more to come back to. The scriptures are a finite amount of text, five verses and two chapters, like our loaves and fishes. But again, with the blessings of God, and especially with the needs of people, whether those are your needs and you're learning for yourself, or the needs of others and you intended to teach, the principles seem to multiply until they meet every need. But don't forget, there's still 12 baskets full. Come back for more. You will change. The people you care about will change. 
the needs that you bring to the table will change. And there is more truth and light remaining to be found. In fact, there were a few things that really struck me last week as I was video editing. Things that I really wished that I had taught when we were in Alma 17 through 22. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but this is not a horse and it's not dead. This is scripture and there's so much living truth that's still untouched or uncovered. So if you'll forgive me a brief flashback, I just want to share a couple of other thoughts from last week's material. The first one struck me as I was putting together the slides of scriptures for Alma chapter 18, the conversation that Ammon first has with King Lamoni. And it struck me how often Ammon has to reassure him, I'm just a man. That hadn't really meant much to me the first, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 times that I've read these chapters. But it did this time. And it came in response to the repeated questions that King Lamoni had about, who is this guy? Is he more than a mere man? Let me fly through a couple of the things that Lamoni and or his servants say. In chapter 18, verse 2, he says, surely this is more than a man. That's why he starts wondering, perhaps this is the great spirit. The servants respond, well, I don't know if he's the great spirit or not, but I know that he has more power than any other person I've ever met. We do not believe that a man has such great power. He can't be slain. So there's, there's something different about this guy. He has to be higher than an, an average, ordinary, mere mortal. That seems to confirm for the king his thoughts. Yep, it must be the great spirit. Then when he asks where Ammon is and finds out that he's out helping get ready the, the horses and chariots, he's more astonished than ever in verse 10 and says, Surely there has not been any servant among all my servants that are so faithful. He's not an ordinary man. He's higher than that. He's not an ordinary servant. He's higher than that. Verse 11, the only thing higher than those he seems, well, again, must be the great spirit. When Ammon comes and there's met with, is met with silence and is about to leave, the servants call him Rabbana, which means powerful or great king. Again, putting him on this pedestal, raising him higher than they were, even higher than their king was, perhaps. The king was certainly willing to do that, raise him all the way up to the level of great spirit himself. And then you really see it in earnest from verse 17 through 21. 17, Ammon says, I am a man. I'm thy servant. 18, King Lamoni is shocked that he could read his thoughts. It's like, great, this is not confirming what you just said. The fact that you could discern my thoughts, read my mind, suggests that you're lying to me. You're not just a man. You must be that great spirit. Who art thou? Art thou that great spirit? Ammon responds in 19, no, I'm not. So 20, then how do you have such power? 21, I know that thou art more powerful than all my armies. See what's happening over and over? Ammon keeps saying, no, I'm down here. And the king, his servants, anybody else? No, you're up here. You're far beyond what you say you are. You're far beyond who we thought you were. In fact, you're far beyond, far above who we think we are. And over and over, Ammon keeps saying, I'm just a man. The last time he says it is in verse 34. I am a man. 35, the only reason I'm any different is because a portion of God's spirit dwells in me. And it dwells in you too. Now, perhaps the reason I didn't think to talk about this last week is because it came across to me as a show of humility, which is awesome, but is it worth spending more time on? But I think there's a whole lot more to it than just humility. This was confirmed when one of you made a comment this past week, talking about your hesitance to share the gospel because you don't feel good enough to be able to do it justice. I get that, believe me. However, in going back to these verses, and thinking about the question that you raised, which I think is such an honest one and such a common one, it hit me that perhaps our sense of inadequacy 
makes us more able to share the gospel, not less, because we can relate to the person. Better yet, they can relate to us. You see, the problem with this, that pedestal, is it establishes distance, and there is danger in that distance because it allows King Lamoni or his servants or any of us to just think that person's just different than I am. I could never be like them, so why even try? This principle really hit me when my wife was pregnant with our fifth. We were living in Tennessee. Family size, on average, was smaller than ours. And when people found out that my wife was pregnant with our fifth child, they were like, whoa. And they'd usually say something to her like, oh, I could never do that. You must have the patience of a saint, which was always meant as a compliment. But in some ways, do you see how it lets them off the hook? Because it suggests that my wife is just categorically different. In other words, it must come easier for you. You're doing what you were made to do, and I'm doing what I'm made to do. I started calling that the fallacy of parental metabolism. Metabolism is what burns our calories, right? Some people seem to be able to eat a ton, and they don't put on weight, and other people are so careful with what they eat, but they can't seem to lose weight at all. They have a slow metabolism. The body burns the fuel slower for some than for others. Now, that's a biological fact, but there is a psychological problem. Anytime we see someone that's in shape and automatically chalk it up to their fast metabolism. Now, they might have one, but they might not. And for some, it might be, how dare you just chalk it up to the way that I was wired when it's my work and not my wiring that is doing this. For many, they don't have a fast metabolism, which is why they diet and exercise so carefully. Again, you understand the danger? By chalking anything up to mere metabolism, we're off the hook. I don't have to try. I'll be true to my inner self. You're true to your inner self, as opposed to, I have some work to do. Just like they had work to do. They were willing to. Am I? Back to the parenting metabolism case. My wife kept wondering, what do I say to that? Because it's not easy for me. I don't have the patience of a Job. But do I just kind of smile and nod like, <laughs> thanks? I said to her, maybe it is worth accepting the compliment, but if you can, push back gently at the misconception that this comes naturally or easily for you. Because recognizing that you're doing this in spite of its difficulty, that's the real compliment. And it's the real encouragement for them to rise above the natural man in each of us. So when people started saying, oh, I could never do that, my wife would often respond, you know, it isn't easy for me either, but it is so worth it. Children are a burden, but they are such a blessing as well. I think we're so hesitant to admit that there's any burden at all, that it takes away the fact that we're choosing to live into this blessing slash burden and excusing anyone that only recognizes the burden part from taking it upon themselves. I hope this is making sense. If there's any sense of that on Lamoni's part or his servant's part, then they can just say, Ammon, you're more than a man. You're more than a servant. You're the great spirit. No wonder you are the way you are. And since we're not that, then no wonder we're the way we are. You see the danger in that distance? Too often when investigators look at missionaries and think, wow, I could never be like that, then why try? Or to see members of the church that are living the gospel well and just think, they must have a different spiritual metabolism than me. Our admissions of inadequacy bring us off that pedestal. We didn't put ourselves on there because we know better. They did.
And if we can take ourselves off, I don't mean we have to air all of our dirty laundry. We don't have to describe all the specific ways that we qualify as natural men and women, but we can share our feelings about the natural man or woman that each of us is. Better yet, we can talk about our reliance on the Lord, His enabling grace and tender mercy in our own lives, the fact that we have needed it so desperately. We can talk about the changes that He has wrought in us, the new heart, the new disposition, the changed image in our countenance. And the more we talk about that change, the more it's understood that a change was necessary and that we underwent it with the Savior's help. Lamoni, servants, fellow servants, I'm just a man. I'm just like you. God changed me. He can change you. Let's all be different together. So for any of you who are struggling with a sense of inadequacy out there, thank God for your inadequacy because it allows you to be relatable to other people who know their own inadequacy all too well. We are all just men, just women, but we can all become disciples of the true God. And that takes more than mere metabolism. One other principle I don't think I did justice to last week is in chapter 22, verse 3, when Aaron comes to preach to King Lamoni's father. And at the end of that verse, the king asks, why didn't Ammon come out of Madonai with you? I think I mentioned this verse in passing, but I think it's worth pausing on because I think it teaches a principle that most of us tend to struggle with. You see, King Lamoni's father wanted Ammon. He'd already had a good experience, well, negative and then good experience with him. He'd never met Aaron. This was a new face to him. And I wanted the old face, not the new one. And I love the fact that the Lord is placing King Lamoni's father into a situation where you need to learn to learn from anyone. Doesn't that seem applicable? Oh, I like my old bishop. I'm not sure about this new one. Last year's gospel doctrine teachers were so much better than this year's. Why did that young women's leader get released? The old one was so much better for my children. I saw it all the time as a seminary teacher, as each student got a new teacher semester after semester after semester. And the kinds of comparisons that those things breed leads to this kind of an issue. How come I have to learn from you when I really wanted to learn from someone else instead? Now, we did talk last week about how different Ammon and Aaron were and how different they needed to be. Remember, Ammon started by serving and then went to teaching. Aaron tries the same tactic and King Lamoni's father himself realizes, actually, maybe I don't want an Ammon. I want a teacher, not a servant. So Aaron, give me your best stuff. So maybe King Lamoni's father is recognizing this. What I thought I wanted isn't exactly what I need right now. And in spite of those personality differences or approach differences between Ammon and Aaron, once we got into the lessons that they taught, the doctrine, they were both creation, fall, atonement. They did seem to get the same MTC training. Been studying the same Preach My Gospel, I guess. So to get past messenger and start recognizing message, that's an important thing for all of us, especially in a church with a lay ministry where callings come and go and people are constantly changing. We all need to learn to learn from anyone. It actually makes us more independent of others and more in control of our own spirituality and spiritual growth, which are both really good things. Last thing I'll say, and then we'll head into this week's material, comes back to a principle that I did teach last week. What struck Lamoni most about Ammon 
was not just his show of strength, chopping off arms. It was the faithfulness of Ammon, which he'd never seen in any other servant. And then when Ammon meets King Lamoni's father and brings him to his knees with a show of physical strength, when King Lamoni's dad finally meets Aaron, what does he remember about Ammon most? Not just his strength. It was his generosity. It was the greatness of his words. And one other thing, it was the great love that Ammon had for his son. It was the inner attributes, not the outer actions so much, that changed him. Maybe this goes back to that sense of inadequacy we started with today. I'll never be strong enough to make a difference in somebody's life. I don't have the intellect or the understanding, the eloquence to be able to do what other people might be able to do. But again, based on Ammon's experience with Lamoni and his father, can we love? Can we love more? Can we work on our generosity, our faithfulness, our love of other people? Devin Durant was a famous BYU basketball player back in the 80s. He eventually went on to be in the NBA for a while. He since has served in the General Sunday School presidency and recently spoke in General Conference. But that wasn't the first time he spoke in General Conference. The first time was back in 1984 as newly returned missionary and rising basketball star at BYU. Now, I was nine years old at the time and probably starstruck more by his athleticism than his spirituality. However, I do remember one of the things that he shared in that talk, and it's blessed me ever since. He told a story about two missionaries, a senior and junior companion, one very well assured of himself, feeling like I know how to teach the gospel really well, the other feeling mired in this sense of inadequacy we've been discussing. They've been teaching a family, and as we've all probably had experiences with, he gets word from the father of the family saying, please don't come back, don't keep teaching us. It's what happens when you see a plastic bag hanging from the doorknob and the copy of the Book of Mormon you gave them is inside. Well, the senior companion thought to himself, if the father will just give me one more chance, I know the gospel well enough, I can speak the language well enough, I can convince him to listen, to know that it's true. Well, the junior companion, feeling like, well, I don't have eloquence, I don't know the gospel well enough, I can't teach like you, but I guess I'll just sit there and be second witness. Well, they went back to the family and asked the father, will you at least give us the chance to share one final message? And very kindly, the man accepted. Well, a miracle happened during that meeting, and the father's heart softened, and the whole family eventually joined the church. You can imagine how the senior companion felt about himself, patting himself on the back, thinking, I knew I could do this. And yet at the baptism, the father came to this senior companion and said, you know, the day you guys came back for that last message was the day that changed our lives. And again, the senior missionary is probably thinking, well, stop, stop. Uh, I, I know I was good. But the father explained, when you came back for that last message, I had a feeling you would unload everything you could on me. Give me one last best shot. And I had prepared myself for that. By convincing myself, do not pay attention to them. Do not listen. No matter what they say, don't let it change your thoughts. And I was doing well. You were talking, you were teaching. I have no idea what you were saying. I wasn't paying attention. But I did make one fatal mistake. I turned and looked at your companion, who had been silent through the whole thing. But as I looked into his eyes, because he was staring right at me, I saw more love in his eyes than I had ever seen in anyone. I felt the love that he had for me and for my family. And I thought to myself, if any church can teach a young man to love like that, then I want to be a part of it. Well, that definitely 
burst the bubble of that senior companion. But what a principle it taught that the great love that we have for people will beat any physical or intellectual strength or expertise that we might think is more necessary in sharing the Word of God. So again, my dear friends, embrace your inadequacy. Realize that it brings you down to the level where you can actually reach someone and help them climb with you to higher heights. Be willing to learn from anyone and hope that the others will do the same for you when you're the one they didn't expect or didn't necessarily choose. And finally, love. Love people. That will have a deeper meaning, a greater effect on them than anything else we could possibly share. Now, we stopped last week at the end of chapter 22, skipping over most of the geography that was there. By the way, there is an awesome video that just came out this past week from Book of Mormon Central that presents an internal map of the Book of Mormon, not trying to superimpose it over Mesoamerica or places in North America, simply internally based on the text itself, where would this city be in relation to this city? And where would this wilderness be as compared to this sea or this river? It's a really helpful resource, very well done video. I would encourage you to check it out, especially if you want to make more sense of the end of Alma chapter 22, which is the biggest solid chunk of geography that we'll see in the scriptures. But what that geography does to the text is split up a thought that began back in verse 27, where it says that the king, this is King Lamoni's father, after his own conversion, sent a proclamation throughout all the land amongst all his people who were in all his land who were in all the regions round about. And I guess that talk of the land and the regions and all of that triggered in Mormon this thought, oh, I should probably explain kind of the lay of that land before we move forward. But as soon as he gets past that, chapter 23, verse 1, he says, Now it came to pass that the king of the Lamanites sent a proclamation among all his people. So we picked up where we left off before the geographic interruption. And this is what the proclamation said that they should not lay their hands on Ammon or Aaron or Omner or Himni, nor either of their brethren who should go forth preaching the word of God, wherever they happen to go, in any part of the land. Now this is a great example of the fact that behind every law or rule is a story. And the stranger the rule, the stranger the story behind it. Usually we invent laws or rules in response to something that somebody did. It's like King Benjamin said, I can't think of every possible way you might sin. Well, once you sin in that way, then I'm going to let, yeah, we, we can't do that. So I have a feeling that based on this proclamation, everything he's saying shouldn't happen, he's probably saying that because it did happen. So when he talks about the sons of Mosiah and don't lay your hands on them, well, that must have been what was happening before. We've seen some of that already, especially in Aaron's case. Verse 2 gets very specific. He sent a decree among them that they should not lay hands on them, you can't bind them. Don't cast them into prison. Stop spitting on them. Quit smiting them. Quit casting them out of your synagogues. No scourging, no casting stones. Again, you see the long list, and you can probably picture Aaron going, yep, check, check, yeah, did that, uh-huh, yep, does that, yep, okay, that happened too. All of these rules can be boiled down to this concept at the end of verse 2. These missionaries should have free access. Let them into your homes. Let them into your temples. Let them into your sanctuaries. The other phrase that echoes that is in the middle of verse 3. That the word of God might have no obstruction. 
That's why he says in verse 3, let them go forth, let them preach the word according to their desires. The king had been converted to the Lord, all his household had been, but there were still so many others of his people that needed that opportunity. So he sends this proclamation throughout the land unto his people that the word of God might have no obstruction, free access. So it could go forth throughout all the land that his people might be convinced concerning the wicked traditions of their fathers, that they might be convinced that they were all brethren, Nephites and Lamanites alike, that they ought not to murder, to plunder, to steal, to commit adultery, nor to commit any manner of wickedness. All of those sins he mentioned, by the way, are sins against the second great commandment, loving neighbor, murder, plunder, steal, adultery. All of those are examples of not truly loving our neighbor as ourselves. So treat each other as brethren. Even if you don't accept the gospel that these Nephite missionaries are teaching, their message can establish peace in the land socially, even if not fully spiritually. You see, the people are not required to convert. I love that about King Lamoni and his father. These are kings, Lamanite kings, used to decreeing things and proclaiming things and having their will observed to the T. The life and death of their people was in their hands, and yet... They weren't forcing their people to convert. We saw that back with King Lamoni. So many people did, but many people didn't and left. This goes back to what King Mosiah was doing in changing the government back in Mosiah 29. Let's not have a monarchy. Let's have people taking responsibility for themselves. It's not going to be me forcing you to do certain things. This is Alma the Younger himself in Alma 4, taking off his political hat and retaining his spiritual hat, recognizing that change is going to have to come from the inside. We'll see a lot more of that today. So I'm not going to force anything. I will honor the religious freedom of unbelievers. They just need to honor the religious freedom of believers. Grant it free access. May there be no obstructions. But no obstructions on one hand was mirrored by no requirements, no enforcement on the other. This religious freedom would go both ways. And that was important. We just need to quit sinning against each other. That becomes a social and civil issue, not just a religious or spiritual one. Even Thomas Jefferson, who was not exactly orthodox religiously, said that, hey, if you believe in one God or a thousand, as long as you don't pick my pocket or break my leg, you do you. He was more of a skeptic himself and wanted people to be free to disbelieve. But as he wrote in his letter concerning religious toleration, he wanted people to know that they were free to believe also. But we have to learn to get along. Spiritual differences are fine. We need to respect those spiritual differences. But we have to learn to get along together and quit sinning against one another. That should be part of both the Christian creed and the humanist creed. Whether we're fellow sons and daughters of God or simply fellow sapiens, murder, plunder, stealing, adultery, those kinds of wickedness have to go. Now, recognizing that if belief and disbelief coexist side by side, then the believers are going to need to be strengthened to be able to maintain their faith in the face of this kind of opposition. So in verse 4, Aaron and his brethren go forth from city to city, from one house of worship to another, establishing churches, consecrating priests and teachers throughout the land among the Lamanites. Why? To do what churches have always done ever since Alma the Elder first set one up at the waters of Mormon to preach, to teach the word of God unto them, to stir them up in remembrance of their duties, to help them live together as saints, 
in a world surrounded by people who didn't care so much to be saintly. In that way, they could be strong. But beyond that, verse 5, in that way, they could also grow. Thousands were brought to the knowledge of the Lord. Thousands were brought to believe in the traditions of the Nephites. And they were taught the records and prophecies which were handed down even to the present time. I love the order there, by the way. They were brought to the knowledge of the Lord first. Believing in Nephite traditions is secondary. Now, I would assume that those traditions aren't just, well, this is how we celebrate Christmas in our house, but rather traditions of righteousness. There is a difference between the gospel and the church, even though those are so intimately connected and related. But to connect people to God first and connect them to church culture second, and certain parts of that culture, I'm sure, not connect them to at all. Connect them to the records and prophecies which are handed down. Connect them to that part of church culture. Help them see what the life of a Latter-day Saint looks like. Traditions of family home evening or family scripture study and prayer. Traditions of church service or general conference watching. But focus on those traditions that can connect people to the knowledge of the Lord, beginning of verse 5, and can connect them to the records and prophecies which have been handed down from prophets, end of verse 5. If our traditions get in the way of those two things, instead of connecting them for people, then those traditions need to go. But if they can help, especially for new converts, how do I live this? How do I pass it on to the next generation? How do I live as a Latter-day Saint? Then showing them how that's done can be a great blessing for both parties. Now, with all of this as background, these incredible conversions in the face of intense opposition and ongoing opposition, since not everyone converted among the Lamanites, having come to a knowledge of the Lord in the first place, having understood some Nephite traditions that would help them maintain that life of discipleship, being connected to the records and prophecies which the Nephites had handed down, no wonder verse 6 ends with this phrase, they never did fall away. Now for any missionary out there, wouldn't you love to have that phrase describe the people that you taught in the field? For every parent raising children, for every church leader or young women, young men's advisor, primary teacher, you name it, thinking about the people that you have taught, could there be a better description, a more longed for phrase to describe their ongoing discipleship than that one? They never did fall away. How do we get there? How do we help converts cement their connection with the Lord to the point that they never fall away. We'll go back up to verse 6 and kind of reverse engineer it. As sure as the Lord liveth, so sure as many as believed, or as many as were brought to the knowledge of the truth. That's the first step. Bring them to the knowledge of the truth. They're going to have to choose, but it's going to begin with the Word, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's going to start there. Or as Paul taught, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So they are brought to the knowledge of the truth through preaching, the preaching of Ammon and his brethren. We learn the gospel. How was it taught? We saw this at the beginning of Alma chapter 17. It was taught according to the spirit of revelation and of prophecy. That was the source of their being able to teach with power and authority from God, right? Alma 17.3. That revelation and prophecy allowed the power of God to work miracles in them. The greatest miracle of all, being the mighty change of heart that these Lamanite converts experienced. Yea, I say unto you, as the Lord liveth, as many of the Lamanites as believed in their preaching and were converted unto the Lord, never did fall away. 
Again, beautiful difference there. It's not just that they believed in their preaching. It was as a result of that, they were converted unto the Lord. They weren't just converted to Ammon, as cool as he was. They weren't just converted to Aaron, as long-suffering and awesome as he was. It's okay for converts to talk about their missionaries, but it's far more essential for them to talk about their God, their testimony, their discipleship. We can be grateful for all the people that have introduced the word to us, but is it helping us to be converted unto the Lord? Because if not, then we probably will fall away. Being tied to lesser things isn't strong enough a connection for us to navigate the last days. Verse 7, as a result of that, they became a righteous people. They did lay down the weapons of their rebellion, that they did not fight against God anymore, neither against any of their brethren. You see the two great commandments there? Love God and love neighbor. Well, they had had weapons of rebellion that severed their relationships in both directions. And yet here they are laying down the weapons of their rebellion for both. In the next few verses, he describes who was converted. He talks about the people of the Lamanites in the land of Ishmael, and in Madonai, and Nephi, and Shilom, and Lemuel, and Shemnalon. Seven cities of Lamanites. But notice each one says, of the people of that city. That they were converts of the people in Madonai, or of the people in Shilom. Which again clarifies, not everyone in those cities converted. There were people from among that city of the people of that city who decided to join the church. In Nephi's vision, way back in 1 Nephi 13, he saw that members of the church would always be in the minority, that we would be of the people of our neighborhood or of our communities. We wouldn't be the whole neighborhood or the whole community. But in any of those communities, we can be the leaven that leavens the lump. Now, he makes an interesting point at the end of 13. They were all Lamanites. Well, duh, isn't that who they were teaching? Well, remember, the Lamanites was kind of an umbrella term that included all kinds of different subgroups, including Nephite dissenters, specifically the Amulonites and the Amalekites that we met last week. Verse 14 then makes clear what he meant by that statement at the end of 13, that they were all Lamanites. The Amalekites were not converted, save only one. Now, I'd love to know that story. We don't know who that lone Amalekite was kind of an Amulek of sorts who bucked the trend there in Ammonihah. But this one solitary Amalekite, interesting. My ancestors were among the first people that joined the church in Italy, back when Lorenzo Snow began the Italian mission in 1850. It only lasted 17 years, and it was not a very successful mission numerically. 172 baptisms total in those 17 years of missionary labor. And their only real success took place among the, this tiny little Protestant population way up in the Alps on the border between Italy and France. They were called the Waldensians. And of the 172 converts in the Italian mission, 171 of them came from this Waldensian enclave up in the Alpine valleys. There was only one Italian-speaking Catholic who joined the church. Interesting to ponder, what was it about him that was able to be so different from his culture, his neighborhood, his family, his surroundings, his people. Oh, I'd love to know about this one Amalekite convert. Well, there was one exception to the Amalekite rejection of the message. There were no exceptions to the Amulonite. Neither were any of the Amulonites converted. But they did harden their hearts 
and also the hearts of the Lamanites in that part of the land wheresoever they dwelt. This is the opposite of leaven leavening the lump. This is the mold taking hold and then spreading throughout the rest of the loaf. In fact, it's interesting to put this near the end of Alma 23 when we recall what he said at the beginning. What was the king's proclamation all about? Free access. No obstructions. Well, no kingly command can take away that one obstruction. A hardened heart. It's one we set up within ourselves which means the only person that can remove it is us. Maybe that's what we should really be praying for when we ask God to remove the obstacles and obstructions to his word. Not Berlin walls and iron curtains. Yes, those can fall. But they'll fall typically as a result of a softened human heart. Those that were willing to remove that obstruction within themselves, those were the ones who converted. In 15, they repented. There's a change of behavior. They came to the knowledge of the truth, there's a change in belief, and were converted. True conversion involves both of these. A changed mind and a changed heart. A new perspective on the world and a new desire to live within that perspective. Now, as a result of this newness, they wanted a new name as well. Doesn't this sound like King Benjamin's people? They have a mighty change and he sees that they're now prepared to take upon themselves the name of Christ. Well, for verse 16... The king and those who were converted were desirous that they might have a name, that thereby they might be distinguished from their brethren. We're all living together, right, in these Lamanite cities. We are just of the people. We're not all the people. So how do you tell us apart? Therefore, the king consulted with Aaron and many of their priests concerning the name that they should take upon them, that they might be distinguished. What they came up with in verse 17 might sound a little strange to modern English-speaking ears. They would be called the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. They were called by that name and were no more called Lamanites. Now, for most of us, we think anti meaning against, which makes this a really strange name. We don't want to be Lamanites anymore. We'd rather be against Nephi and Lehi. Well, that's what a Lamanite is. If that's what you wanted to be, stick with the old name. There's been some interesting linguistic studies on that. Some have suggested that it comes from an Egyptian word, enti, which has something to do with being of or part of something. That would make sense there. We don't want to be of the Lamanites. We want to be of Nephi and Lehi instead. We want to follow that family line instead of this one. So that's a good possibility. Even if it is more of the over against that we consider with anti, it doesn't necessarily have to be oppositional. It can also mean facing. Now we typically take that in terms of facing in opposition to. But what if it's facing in terms of a turn? Isn't that what repentance is? I no longer want to face the Lamanites and their way of life. So I am turning from them towards. I want to be face to face over against the Nephites, looking to them. This is like King Benjamin's people with their tents facing the right direction. That's another possibility as well. Whatever the name actually meant, it meant a lot to them. And it was a sign of a drastic turn, a drastic change. We see that change in verse 18. They became a very industrious people. How many times have we seen the idle-idle connection? I-D-O-L and I-D-L-E. That explains a lot of the murdering and plundering and robbing that we saw before. It's just easier if I let somebody else do it and then take their stuff. Isn't that Limhi's problem, right? When he was in Lamanite territory? Massive taxation? No, now I'm going to work for myself. By the way, speaking of Limhi's people, 
It's another great example of wanting to take a different name. Remember we saw that earlier? The subgroup that were Amulonites when they recognized that their fathers had abandoned their families once and for all, they were ashamed of that and said, I will not be called by Amulonites anymore. I will be called by Nephites. Again, beautiful, beautiful parallels. They're industrious. They are friendly with the Nephites. That's a huge change. They open a correspondence with them. And it's on the heels of that statement that it says the curse of God did no more follow them. Now, we talked about this before back in Alma chapter 3. The curse is not a darker skin. That was simply a mark placed upon them. The curse was separation from God, his people, his prophets, his ordinances, his scripture. Well, they've now opened a correspondence. They are friendly with that separation between God, vertical, and between his people, horizontal, is no longer present. So the curse is no longer present. The curse isn't following them because they have started to follow God. Now, this isn't going to be easy. The fact that they never did fall away did come at a cost. And we'll see that most painfully in chapter 24. 